Uh, let me add my uh, welcome to graduates and my congratulations to those who are here with us or those at home. <laughs> I have some... So when I was pastor here, we used to get invited to a lot of graduation open houses. And I remember when my son Dan was probably second grade and uh, he set a goal of eating a piece of cake at every open house that we went to. And I believe we had 17 that weekend. <laughs> and you have never seen anybody enjoy cake less than Dan did <laughs> toward the end of that weekend. One of the truths that I believe strongly, and I think that I've experienced in my life, and I know many of you would echo that as well, is that, that people who encounter God are changed. That God encounter transforms us. And one of the things I love so much about this series that we just finished, Stories from the Seats, is just stories of people like you and me who encounter God and whose lives are impacted and changed. So now we're kind of following it up by saying, in fact, that's really what the Bible is all about, isn't it? That's not, that's not a bad way to think about the Bible, that it is the story of God meeting people and changing lives. And so today we're going to be looking at one of the guys in the Bible who had that kind of experience. But to do it, I think we need to kind of get a running start on it. So I'm going to ask if you could just sit back for a minute, and I'm going to give you sort of an Old Testament history lesson. You game for this? I'm not going to ask, you, because that's what we're going to do. So, so we got to go way back to the time of Abraham. I, I've, I've mentioned this often, and I hope it sticks with some of you anyway. Two important Old Testament dates to remember. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus, 2,000 B.C., and King David lived 1,000 years before Jesus, 1,000 B.C. So Abraham is... 2,000, yeah, and David is 1,000. So we're going back 2,000 years before the time of, of Jesus. And Abraham and his family are in, the Bible says, Ur of the Chaldees. Then they move with their family to a different city, the city of Haran. And it's there that God calls Abraham. And we really sort of mark that as the beginning of, of our Jewish Christian heritage and faith. And God calls Abraham to leave that culture, to leave his home and set out and go to a land that God would, would show to him. So he leaves Haran, he travels to Canaan, which is now we would think of as Israel today. And God makes some amazing promises to Abraham, two in particular. One is, he says that I'm going to make of you a great nation. That's where it talks about, remember, it talks about more descendants than the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. And God says, and through you, through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And that, of course, is a reference to the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, would come through this line of Abraham. The problem is Abraham and Sarah have no children, and they're getting very old. Abraham is 100, Sarah is 90. And miraculously, she conceives and gives birth to a son, Isaac. Isaac then and his wife, Rebecca, have twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And it's Jacob we're going to be focusing on particularly today. And those three guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are thought of and called the patriarchs. When you hear them talk about Old Testament patriarchs, they're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Now, a couple of things we need to know about these twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And the first is, and maybe one of the most important things, is that Esau is older than Jacob. So not much difference when they were born. In fact, it says that Jacob was actually holding on to Esau's heel or his foot when, when Esau was born. But Esau's a little bit older. And in that culture that time, being the oldest son meant everything. It meant that as the older son, he would inherit virtually all of his father's property and wealth. Now, these were wealthy guys. Um, there were times when we get a picture of, of the huge number of, of herds and cattle and, and sheep and oxen that, that they had. There's one story, in fact, about Abraham, where Abraham needs to kind of pull together a rescue party, and it says he brought together more than 300 of his men's servants. So these were wealthy guys. So Esau, as being the older son, would inherit most of the, of the wealth from his father Isaac. The other thing was, he would become then Isaac's successor, he would be the leader of their clan, of their family. And those two blessings and rights would be his as the older son. Now, we know that Esau is described as sort of being a man's man. It describes it as big and strong and hairy, and he loved the outdoors, and he loved hunting, and he was his dad's favorite. You know, a lot of testosterone in that boy. Jacob was not like that. Jacob was his mama's boy, and he liked to stay home by the tents. By the way, let me just, I, I misunderstood, I think, for a long time, when it talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these people, they were nomads, so they didn't build houses, they lived in tents. And I was picturing our Boy Scout, you know, pup tent kind of thing. When we were in Israel, we saw some nomad tents. I mean, they are huge. I, you know, I don't know, a thousand square feet in these huge tents. So when it talks about their tents, don't think just, you know, this little two-man Boy Scout tent. This, this is big stuff. Jacob stayed at home with his mother with the tents. Now, there's one other thing that we need to know about these two boys, and that is that Esau was a fool, and Jacob was a liar and a cheat. And we see that illustrated in one of the first stories we have about Jacob and Esau together in the Bible. So we're going to look at that now. So in what book of the Bible would we find the stories about Jacob and Esau? Genesis, that's right, Genesis, we find that. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 25 right at the moment. And so this is a time when, uh, when Esau's gone out hunting, he's coming back to where their, where their tents are set up. And here's what happens. This is Genesis 25, verses 29 through 34. It says, so once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Oh, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau 
despised his birthright. What a great illustration, a great picture of what these two young men were like. Esau is just totally controlled by his passions, by his appetites. He comes in from hunting. I mean, he could have fixed himself a sandwich. He doesn't need to make this big deal. I'm going to die if I don't get some stew. And, and so what is he willing to do? He's willing to trade his birthright for a pot of stew. Now, birthright, that was, that was the part that meant that he was going to inherit all this stuff, all these riches from his father, from his grandfather, passed down to him. And he doesn't care anything about it. In fact, I, I appreciate that phrase. It says, you know, so Esau despised his birthright. He didn't even care about it. And so he trades it to, to his brother Jacob for a pot of stew. Now, time goes on. Their father Isaac has grown old, he's dying, he's uh, partially blind, he seems to be bedfast. And so we come to the second story where we encounter these two guys. And Jacob is already getting what he wants. He's got the birthright. If there were just some way he could get the blessing that would bestow upon him the right of leadership and privilege in their clan and in their family, and that opportunity comes about. So it happens that, that, that Isaac is old, and he, he realizes that before he dies, he needs to pass on the blessing to his son Esau. So now we're in chapter 27 of Genesis. It says, so Isaac said, I am now an old man. I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, he's talking to Esau, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Who does that sound like? It certainly sounds like Esau, doesn't it? Here he is. Now fix me some of that food I like so much. So Esau says, yeah, yeah. So he goes off hunting to get the wild game that he needs so he can prepare this meal for his dad, and then he's going to get the blessing. Jacob's mom, their mom, Rebecca, overhears this, and she calls Jacob in, and they devise a plan by which he can get the, the blessing instead of his brother. So what they decide to do is that Jacob is going to pretend to be Esau. So his mom says, go out, get a lamb, bring it in. I'll fix the stew. Don't worry about that. You just need to become like Esau. So they took some lamb's wool and they tied it on the back of his hands and on his throat so he'd be hairy like his brother. And they had him dress in some of his brother's clothes so that he would smell like his brother. Take that for whatever you want to. And so he gets the stew, he dresses like his brother, and he goes into his dad. And Isaac is on his bed, he can't see well, and uh, Jacob comes in, and Isaac is suspicious. He's back so quick from his hunting, and it doesn't quite sound like Esau. So he says, you know, come here, let me feel you. And so it says that Jacob came up to him, and he felt the back of his hands and his neck, and he felt the wool, and it felt like the hairy son that he loved so much. And, and he smelled him, and it smelled like Esau. And so he goes ahead to give him the blessing. The blessing that he gives is recorded in the 27th chapter of Genesis. And, and this is part of it, and it's really beautiful. Listen to what, what Isaac says then to his son Jacob. He says, this is Genesis 27, 28, and 29. says, may God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness. 
an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. He's got the blessing now. He already had the birthright, now he's got the blessing. He is set for life. Quickly, he gets out of, uh, out of the tent away from his father, just in time, because that's when Esau comes back. And Esau's gone hunting, and he's got the food, and he's prepared it, and he brings it into his, his father. And he says, well, here I am, Dad. I got the stuff for you. Now you can bless me. And, and Isaac said, well, wait, who are you? And he says, oh, maybe Esau. And his dad says, then who was that who was just in here? And I gave him the blessing. And they realized that it was Jacob and that they'd been fooled. And Esau is so angry. And he says, well, give me the blessing too. And Isaac says, I, I can't. It's done. It's done. I can't give a blessing to you. And Esau is furious. He's enraged. And he cries out, Jacob, I'm going to kill you. And he means it. As soon as Isaac dies, he is going to kill his brother because he's not going to put up with that kind of cheating any longer. Jacob thought he had it all. He had the blessing. He had the birthright. Everything is going his way. And now he's, his life is in danger. His brother's going to kill him. And so he and his mom devise a plan. And they decide he better just get out of there right away while he's got the chance before his father dies. And so they send him off to Haran the city that Abraham came from. They still had family there. And they say, you know, maybe you can just stay there with some relatives. You might even find a wife there. And so Jacob sets out from home. And everything has changed. All the, the riches and honor and prominence, everything he'd hoped for in life was his, and now it's gone. He's leaving his home. He's leaving his overly protective mother. He's leaving the, the security he had of these, the blessing and the birthright that he had stolen from his brother. And now he's scared for his life. And he grabs a few things together and he runs into the desert. And he goes as far as far away from the tents of home as he can. And he runs all day. And he's tired and he's hot. And the sun sets and he falls down on the ground exhausted. And there out in the desert, he leans back against a stone and he falls into an exhausted sleep. And while he's asleep, he has a vision, a dream. It's the dream, the vision that we sometimes refer to as Jacob's ladder, though rather than a ladder, it's really more like a stairway, stairs. And in this vision, Jacob sees heaven and earth and this stairway. And let's look at, uh, look at how it's described in, uh, in Genesis. So there's the, the stairway with angels, it says, coming from heaven down to earth and, and going from earth back up to heaven. And it's like this is sort of the doorway between heaven and earth. And there at the top of the stairway, he sees God. Here's how it's described. This is Genesis 28. And there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. 
Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And Jacob wakes up, and he's overwhelmed. This God of Abraham and his father Isaac that he thought he'd left because of terrible things that he's done in desperation, he'd run away even from God. And now God is reaching out to him from heaven and giving him the assurance that God still loves and cares for him, has a plan for his life, and is going to bless him in amazing ways. And Jacob says, it's, it's like this is, like this is the, the house of God. And he takes that stone he's been leaning against, and he sets it up on end, and he, he pours oil on it to kind of anoint it as a holy place. And he says, this, this is a holy place. And he, he says, I'll call it Bethel. Beth meaning house, and El meaning God. This is it's like this is the house of God. And Jacob goes on his way a different person because he's met with God and he's been assured that God is reaching out to him in love and forgiveness and mercy and blessing. It seems to me that that kind of story typifies what we read so often in the Bible, that when people encounter God, their lives are changed. In fact, that's not a bad way to read the Bible, I think, to look at those encounters, to look for them, to see those places where God is reaching out to people, reaching out to them and changing their lives. It's not too different, I guess, than the, the story of Moses. Remember? So Moses also has fled for his life out into the desert. He's killed an Egyptian. His life is also in, des in, in danger. So he's gone uh, away from Egypt. He's out in the desert. Remember, he sees the burning bush and he goes to, to close to it to see what's going on. And the voice from the bush says, you know, Moses, says, stop right there. He says, take the shoes off your feet. Take off your sandals. Because this is holy ground. This, why, why was this holy ground? Because the presence of God was there. The holy God was there. And he was meeting with Moses. And Moses is changed. God calls him to go back to Egypt. To, to bring relief and freedom to his people. And Moses leaves because he's encountered the living God. We see that happening again and again in the Bible. One of, one of my favorite stories is often overlooked. It's actually in the New Testament. It's a story about Peter. And, and Jesus is walking along the, the Sea of Galilee where Peter and Andrew and James and John are fishermen. And Jesus gets into their boat because people are so crowded around the shore listening to him that he's you know, kind of trying to find a place where he can sit and, and teach them. He's in the boat. He's done. He sends the people away. And then he says to the, the fishermen, let's go out into the lake and fish. Oh, swell. Says they fished all night. They've caught nothing. And now this guy, who's probably never been fishing in his life, is going to tell us to go out and go fishing. Okay, we'll do it. And so remember, they go out, and Jesus tells them where to throw the nets. And they throw the net, and they pull it in. And it is full of fish. 
and the nets are starting to rip. And as they shovel the fish into the boat, the boat is getting so full, the boat is going to sink. And they call over the, uh, the other fishermen in their boat to come and to help. And all of a sudden, Peter looks at Jesus sitting there in the boat, smiling at him. And he gets this glimpse of Jesus as a holy God. And he feels so unworthy. It says he kneels down in the boat in the midst of all those flopping fish. And he says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. It's like Isaiah in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, who goes into the temple and gets a vision of a holy God. I remember, I'm sure I'd read it many times before, but I remember reading it one time and being so struck by the difference between this holy God and a man like, like Isaiah, like us. I, I memorized it. In fact, it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is, this is Isaiah speaking. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. The train of his robe, that shows how important he was. And the whole house was filled with smoke, the incense burning up to God. And it says, you know, there beside him stood the, the seraphim, these angelic creatures, each having six wings. And with two, they covered their faces. Why? Because they could not look on this holy God. Two, they covered their faces, and two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the sound of the voice of him who called. And what does Isaiah feel? He says, Woe is me, I'm going to die. Because my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of glory. It says, then one of the, the seraphim took from the altar a burning coal, and he brought it to Isaiah, and he touched his lips with it, and he said, now your sins are forgiven, and your iniquity is pardoned. He encountered this holy God, and he realized, I'm, I'm a sinful man compared to this Incredible, glorious, holy being. This is another time when, when Moses has brought the, the Israelites to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And, and Moses says, I, I just need to see you, Lord. I just need to see you. And God says, okay, you can come up onto the mountain. But here's what we're going to do. There's, there's a cleft in the mountain, you know, an indentation. And he said, I want you to go in there. And he said, I'll cover you with my hand, and my glory will pass by, he said. But you can't see my face, because if you see my face, you will die. God is a holy, holy God, and to see his face meant you would die. You know, that's the, that's the whole story behind the building of the temple in Jerusalem. Remember how it was set up? The temple itself is just this little building, but these courtyards around it and these walls and the farthest wall meant that nobody who wasn't a, a Jew could come past that wall. And the next wall, women could go in there, but no further. And the next one, men could go in, but no further. And then you get to the courtyard surrounding the temple, and the priests were there. But even the priest, this is sort of amazing, even the priest couldn't go into the temple. 
No, nobody goes into the temple. Remember when, when John the Baptist was born and his, and his father had just by lots been selected to go into the temple to burn incense? That was probably the only time in his life as a priest he actually went into the temple building once in his lifetime. And they would go in to offer incense, you know, and prayers for the people. And then in the back of the temple... Is the holy place, the most holy place where the presence of God was, and nobody goes in there except the high priest once a year. And before the high priest would go in, he'd have to bathe and put on clean clothes, and he would offer sacrifices for his sins and the sins of his family, and then he would prepare to go into this presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And you remember what they would do? They would tie a cord around his ankle because they thought he may go into the presence of God and be so overwhelmed by the holiness and glory of God, he may die in there. And we can't go in to get him then. We'd have to pull him out by this cord. God is a, a holy God, a holy God. And when we recognize the holiness of God, it changes us. And we recognize our own unworthiness, and yet we recognize that God is reaching out to us at times when we don't expect it, at times when we don't deserve it. I'm going to tell you a story. I, I hesitate to tell this story very often because I think it makes me sound like an idiot uh, or a strange person anyway, but... When I went to college, I, I was a Christian, and my faith was really important to me, and I'd gone to a church-related college, and I took the introductory religion course there, and the, the whole purpose of this professor was to destroy our faith, and it sure worked for me. He had written the textbook, and it showed that the Bible wasn't true, and you couldn't believe most of what you'd been taught as a stupid kid when you didn't know any better, and it crushed me. It crushed my faith. Everything I believed in, every goal in my life was gone. How could I have been so stupid? And I went and I was at home. And I don't remember if it was over spring break or during, during the summer. But I was in my room and I was desperate. I was desperate for God and I didn't even know if he existed anymore. And I cried out to God, God, if you are real... Show me, show me. And so in that dark bedroom that night, this light appeared, kind of human-shaped, sort of. And the, the best illustration I can find for it is on Star Trek, you know, beam me up, Scotty, you know, and people would be beamed up and, and they and then sort of become the person, you know, and it was like that. And I knew, I knew that was Jesus there. And he'd heard my prayer, my desperate prayer, and it was coming to me. And I felt so unworthy. I turned away and I couldn't look. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I had no right to ask that. Forgive my lack of faith. It seems to me like that's what God is doing in the Bible. 
He's reaching out to people at times where they don't expect it, when they don't deserve it. And he's saying, I am a holy God, and your sin separates you from me. But I love you, and I'm reaching out to you. He's the father of the prodigal son. You remember the story Jesus told, and the son goes off, and he lives this debauched life of sinfulness and waste, and he's desperate, and he's lost everything. His money's all gone, and he doesn't even have food to eat. And in sort of desperation, he decides he'll go back home to his father. And where's his father? The father that's been rejected, the father they left behind. He's standing there at the end of the road, and he's been there every night, just looking down the road, longing for his son to come home. And he sees his son coming, and what does he do? No. He runs. He runs to the road and embraces his son. That's what God does for us. Remember what it says that happened when Jesus was crucified? When Jesus became the way by which our sinfulness could be forgiven and we could come back to God, it says that curtain in the temple that divided that holy place where the presence of God was, that the the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. It opened up the way by which we might come through Jesus, come back to God. I just got to make a couple comments, and then we're going to have to wind this up. And the first is this, that no matter how far you may feel from God, God is near to you. Jacob thought, God is back there with Abraham and Isaac. He's not with me. And in the desert, he met God. You know. Your feelings of God being distant and far away say something about you, but they don't say anything about God. He is always close to you. He is always near to you. Secondly, God takes the initiative in reaching out to you. You may not have reached out to him, but God is reaching out to you. At this moment, you may feel like God is far away. God is reaching out to you. And finally, just know this, that no circumstances can separate us from God's love. Uh, Let's pray. God, you are a holy God. You are a holy God. We don't even know exactly what all that means. But we know we are sinful people and we don't deserve your love. And yet, and yet you reach out to us. And I know that you are reaching out to friends here today. And I would pray that if there are any today who feel like you are far away, like like their sinfulness is so overwhelming that it's separated from them. You, I, I pray, Lord, that through the death of Jesus Christ, they might accept the hand that you offer to them and give their life to you. Amen.